Hello there, you are now watching Tetsuo the Iron Man and you are listening to Tom Mess, author of the book Iron Man the Cinema of Shinya Tsukamoto. And uh, as we start off, you're going to get to see and get to see a strange little title, the regular size monster series. Here it is. Two size no kaijin series. Um, that's the same philosophy that he used in the adventure of Denchu Kozo his previous short film, this idea of combining the unearthly, the monster, and uh, the thoroughly familiar, the things that are of regular size. And that nicely segues into this opening scene, which all seems very everyday. And actually, this is uh, our, our villain of the piece, Yatsu, or the guy, sometimes also described as the metal fetishist looking uh, very everyday like a sort of like a factory worker on uh, on his lunch break in a sense but of course he's going to turn into this uh, amazing astonishing fusion of flesh and metal that's going to take over the world and turn it to rust and uh, yeah this room he steps into is just a regular room and if i'm not mistaken it was actually shot in Tsukamoto's own room where he was living at the time. Yeah, you look you look later you'll see him actually sitting on a on a tatami mat, which is the, the regular traditional style of flooring in, in Japanese apartments. So that's uh, the idea of this very outlandish, monstrous, uh, fantastical idea happening amidst everyday, very normal surroundings. Which is something that he gleaned from one of his favorite television series, Ultra Q. I talk about that in the, my commentary on the adventure of Denchu Kozo. Also, as we go, we get this little like panning shot across all this strange machinery, this little machinescape that he's made in his own apartment. And uh, there you notice all these cutouts, paper cutouts of athletes. And it's interesting to see that they're all black athletes. Um, Tetsuo the Iron Man has been said to be a cyberpunk or in the cyberpunk genre. There are some differences, which I'll discuss from time to time during this commentary. Um, but I think we can say with that Tetsuo the Iron Man is cyberpunk if cyberpunk is at least in part about the fusion of, of the human and, and the machine. Um, so there's been a lot of, uh, quite a number of observers of cyberpunk who have criticized that genre for, you know, having a bit of a, a race problem. Uh, notably that it doesn't give any space or very little space or very little consideration to um, black people in this, this cyberpunk future. It seems to be entirely dependent on um, or consist of white people and Asian people. Um, I'm not going to go into that and, and add my voice, but um, I just wanted to point out um, those cutouts and them all being black characters because it's something that sort of like it passes very quickly and it's easy to miss. But in my point of view, they those cutouts sort of represent like pure human physicality. Um, it's come out those main theme you could say the motif that runs through his films from Tetsuo the Iron Man onwards all the way through well at least until Snake of June so that covers um, uh, almost 15 years of, of quite prolific filmmaking um, are about this idea of the human body in its in its sort of like urban quite sterile urban environment the concrete and steel uh, with very little that's actually natural uh, as a kind of a, a muting effect it sort of keeps people in a in a kind of daze and uh, we don't use our body we don't use our bodies very much we're not very conscious of our bodies let alone training our bodies having you know having uh, bodies that can function um, thanks to uh, endurance and and and, and muscle etc so it's that, it's that state, in a sense, of uh, how the body ought to be in its purely organic form that is represented here in Tetsuo the Iron Man by these cutouts. Because Tetsuo the Iron Man is, in terms of this theme, this motif, 
more of an instinctive kind of work than the later ones. I mean, from Tetsuo 2, uh, he becomes much more, Tsukamoto becomes much more conscious in, uh, in expressing that. So this regular size monster series also, also refers to um, uh, the blueprint for Tetsuo, which was the phantom of regular size. Exp I explained in the, the previous commentary from Denchi Kozo why that film is not in this box set. Um, but yeah, basically that was, a, that was the, the, the essential idea of Tetsuo was already done by Tsukamoto in this 18 minute short film from 1986. Um, and Tetsuo is, is an expansion and updating and a great improvement also uh, over that version. Um, so yeah, he went, that's from 86, and he went from there to shooting the adventure of Denchu Kozo in 87. Um, no, already in 86 he started shooting Adventure of Denchu Kozo and then in September 87 he started shooting Tetsuo the Iron Man. Um, by that point he had decided to quit his job and devote himself to filmmaking, um, at least with the films that he at the time knew he wanted to make, which was Denchu Kozo and Tetsuo the Iron Man. And his parents weren't very happy. <laughs> his father, he, uh, as I explained in the previous commentary, Tsukamoto had a job at a, in advertising and his father had worked in the same uh, in the same area, and his father kicked him out of the house. Tsukamoto was living in this very, very tiny, tiny room. It's not even an apartment, and uh, so that's the situation he was in when he was making these films. It's really quite amazing. Um, so we're in the, the the title credit sequence now. We see this amazing spastic sort of dance by uh, our lead actor Tomoro Taguchi, and this kind of reminds me of. Uh, a talking Heads video. Also the look of, of Taguchi is a bit like David Byrne. But uh, anyway, this sequence um, really utilizes the, the, the expressive power of, of Taguchi as an actor. Um, I explained in the previous commentary that he was a, a punk singer. He was the lead, lead singer in a band called Bachi Kaburi. And uh, their performances were already quite theatrical. And Taguchi was in the castle of the adventure of Denchu Kozo, but he played one of the, the, the three, you know, vampire villains. So he wasn't especially, you can see that actually, the adventure of Denchu Kozo on the television here. So Taguchi didn't particularly stand out in any way. He didn't have a role that allowed him to really, um, you know, put his all into it, which is definitely much more the case with Tetsuo the Iron Man. And uh, Tsukamoto makes really good use of that. In fact, I think the whole idea of performance, uh, letting actors uh, really embrace their part and give everything they have to it, I think that's a huge part of Tetsuo the Iron Man. Uh, certainly with the actress Kei Fujiwara, who plays uh, Taguchi's uh, girlfriend. And also an actress Nobu Kanaoka, who will play the, the woman who gets infected and then starts to chase Taguchi uh, down, the, down the corridors of, of a train station. They all get to do, do these uh, dance sequences. Also, Kei Fujiwara here, like in Adventure of Denchikozo, does a nude scene. Um, you know, to do this on, a, on a, like a no, basically a no-budget indie movie made by a group of friends and co collaborators is not uh, obvious. I mean, it's not, she's not getting a million dollars to take off her clothes here. So there's definitely the, the idea also from her at the time that this was a necessary part of, of the character and the characters and the story. So there's a lot of um, uh, performance, strong performance coming from the actors. And that is that is really uh, a huge component of uh, of the power of this film. So it's not just you know the crazy uh, the crazy editing and the, and the, the outlandish ideas and the, and the great special effects work and everything. A lot of it is quite simply the, the performances, really full-blooded performances by the main actors. So here we see uh, the actress Nobu Kanaoka, 
who uh, had a, a very important role also in the adventure of Denchu Kozo as uh, in in not just one part but three parts. And we also get to really see that the whole like sweaty discomfort of uh, city living certainly in Tokyo um, if you're there in the summer and this looks like uh, since it was September um, that would have been the summer and it's really really hot and really really humid and uh, everybody still wears their business suits to work and everything and it's just as busy in the streets and just as busy on the subway so it's not exactly comfortable living during those summer months. And she goes from that same sort of like sweaty discomfort to this you know, like intense villainy all of a sudden when she has been infected by our metal fetishist villain. And that claw of course is very reminiscent of the, the uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, that fusion of a, of a hand and, and a handgun. And of course using those same ribbed, uh, ribbed pipes to connect this, uh, this, to create this whole idea of the biomechanical, which uh, Giger, of course, H.R. Giger, the alien creator also uses uh, quite a bit. Um, we get very, very little dialogue in this film. There's going to be a little bit more later when we sort of get explanations from the, for the motivations of, uh, of our metal fetishist villain. But it's even, even there, it's not particularly necessary to tell the story. As I said, this, is a, this film is already a little bit more uh, an instinctive approach to the themes that Kamoto had in his head. And... Um, so even with even if you understand the dialogue, it doesn't necessarily explain these ideas very clearly. So all in all, um, you know, on Tetsuo Yarman, Tetsuo Yarman doesn't need dialogue. It's not a film that needs to give you exposition or tell you why characters are doing what they are doing. You can follow it quite easily. And the proof of that is the fact that Tetsuo the Iron Man uh, in 1989 was selected for uh, um, the Fanta Fantastic Film Festival, the Rome Fantastic, Fantastic Film Festival in, uh, in Italy, where it won the grand prize. And it played there without subtitle. So that really uh, proves how you know a film like a film like this doesn't need subtitles, how it really expresses everything through images and sounds and editing, etc. So it's very pure cinema. It's almost it's basically a silent film. You know, you could say you could say that Tetsuo the Iron Man is the world's noisiest silent film. Noisiest of course also thanks to uh, the musical score by Chu Ishikawa, uh, his first uh, but certainly not his last collaboration with uh, with Tsukamoto. Um, he had a, a sort of like um, a industrial noise band at the time called Zeitlich Vergelter, uh, a German name that, or pseudo-German name that uh, expresses where some of his uh, influences were coming from. Um, somebody passed Tsukamoto uh, a tape of, of that band's music when uh, Tsukamoto was looking for someone to do the music for the film. Um, and uh, he really liked it and, and asked to meet Chiwishikawa. Uh, but Chiwishikawa had never made film music before, so he wasn't uh, really sure how to, how to go about it. But he loved the challenge and he said, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And he just made a, a, a number of just musical pieces, just a number of songs essentially, and gave those to Tsukamoto and to, to, to use as, as Tsukamoto saw fit. Um, and Tsukamoto's instruction for, uh, for Ishikawa for making the soundtrack was to, to do music made, ex made exclusively with, with metal. 
So Ishikawa took that very literally at first, and he would he made tried to make music with using you know pieces bars of iron and then hammering them and other and pieces of steel etc etc which didn't really work very well, and because it didn't turn out as music in a sense. Um, then he sort of realized like uh, maybe he doesn't mean it literally. So if I make music that sort of sounds like it was made with metal, it's probably fine, and that's how he found uh, that really amazing. Uh, sound that is so much uh, an integral part of of Tetsuo of this film and its impact. So at this point, where uh, Nobukanaoka, as the uh, uh, the infected woman, attacks uh, our hero, who is only credited as Otokon, the man. So there was supposed to be, just before she actually uh, attacks him, when she enters that little garage, there was originally, uh, in the first cut of Tetsuo the Iron Man, which was 10 minutes longer than the, the final version, she did a, a kind of tap dance scene. So I mentioned earlier this, the, this kind of motif of dance sequences running through the film. So there was one for her as well. Um, Tsukamoto cut it out because he felt it was uh, too outlandish, if you can imagine that. Uh, it was actually it was actually eventually released, the 77-minute version. There's a um, the Tetsuo Perfect box, which was released only in Japan. Uh, it, it combined the DVD of that 77-minute version with uh, a book about the Tetsuo series. It's a lovely little box, and it came out quite a few years ago at the time. This was when uh, Tetsuo the Bullet Man, the third Tetsuo film, was, was released. So, If you're really interested, I'm sure you can still pick up uh, uh, a used copy somehow online. Again, amazingly expressive acting there from Tomoro Taguchi. And of course, while I'm recording this, I'm watching the film with the sound off. So that makes the, the visual aspect even come out even stronger. And uh, then you even more clearly get this sense of uh, the, the feel of the look of the film. Um, this very high contrast, black and white, the very full-blooded performances. So it's kind of, yeah, I would recommend just watching the film one time with the sound turned off. And you can see what, uh, uh, perhaps even more you will appreciate what an amazing accomplishment this film is. So the chase scene that we just saw is uh, it starts out on the on the platform of a, a, a train station, a proper actual train station. I'm sure they didn't ask for permission to shoot there; they just went there. Um, but then the following chase scene is really it's kind of like a collage of, of locations. Of course, throughout the film we get all these, as you see now, these uh, the stop mo semi stop motion, semi live action sequences that go all through these quite suburban actual locations. But uh, yeah, that chasing is really a collage of various locations because you never see the character actually leaving the station, like going through the turnstiles. So, but most of those uh, shots are not actually in the station, they're in other places. So that really creates the impression of the city as a sort of like this alienating concrete labyrinth, um, which is an idea that Kamoto would expand much more on Tetsuo 2. At Tetsuo 2, that's everything there is concrete and glass. Um, whereas, in, in, of course, in Tetsuo the Iron Man, you're looking at mostly suburban locations, uh, which is something I pointed out on, uh, on the adventure of Denchikozo. So, yeah, with Tetsuo 2 onwards, as I said, that's a much more conscious film and a much more conscious expression of this sterile environment uh, while we are watching. Uh, it's quite amazing dance sequence, an expressionist fantasy dream featuring Kei Fujiwara and Taguchi. 
so yeah on Tetsuo 2 you get that sort of like expansion of uh, the city as the alienating concrete labyrinth um, very sterile um, much more sterile than actually what we just saw it's kind of dingy still <laughs> in Tetsuo the Iron Man which is something that Tsukamoto would come back to on Bullet Ballet actually which is shot in a lot of back alleys and again in black and white for the first time since Tetsuo but yeah that idea of sterility and uh, expressed also in, in color you find in Tetsuo 2 and then onto Tokyo Fist where um, kind of Tsukamoto Tokyo Fist, oh, he leaves cyberpunk behind so it becomes in a sense his first um, full realization of, of his potential as a filmmaker So when talking about these really full-blooded performances um, you need to know that all these main actors, all four of them, came from a, from a theater background. And uh, I've explained on the, the previous commentary about uh, Tsukamoto's own theater plays and his theater troops, which uh, all of the four main actors, Tsukamoto himself, Tomoro Taguchi, Kei Fujiwara and Nobu Kanaoka, were, uh, if not full-time members, then at least collaborators on. Um, so that aspect of theatrical performance um, finds its way into the, the film, certainly the early films. Even these these love scenes, if you look at it, they're basically choreographed. In a sense, they're kind of like wild dances. And I know if you know of Buto dance, which is this style of dance, which is often uh, um, seen as being very typical for the 1960s counterculture and um, sort of like um, a new approach to theater and dance where the, the performances become very jittery and kind of um, they play with, with grotesque uh, physical appearances. And quite a bit of that you can, you can sense in this, the way they perform this, this love scene. So there's a strong theatrical element to, uh, to Tsukamoto's work in general and to the very early films in particular. And the aspect of eroticism, uh, of course, uh, Kamoto, he's probably, gonna, he's probably going to talk about this on the other commentary track. But uh, one of his original ideas was to do an erotic film. And he didn't really, wasn't really sure how to get around doing that just as an as a amateur filmmaker. And then, uh, so he landed upon this metaphor of, of um, flesh being invaded by metal. Nevertheless, in the, in the, certainly in the in the presence of Kei Fujiwara, he had an actress who was willing and able to uh, to incarnate that, and even in very funny ways, as we see here with the, her interaction with this sausage. So yeah, Kei Fujiwara was a, a very important aspect of Tetsuo the Iron Man. I mean, she did. She was essentially Tsukamoto's right hand, a creative collaborator. Um, she worked the camera and she did uh, a lot of different things, came up with a lot of ideas. So uh, a lot of uh, what became Tetsuo also came from her, from her ideas, from her personality, from her drive, her visions which you can sort of see, you know, you can sense something very, very similar from her first uh, film as a director, which is Organ, uh, which is not a film you, that's easy to get a hold of these days, unfortunately. But if you can, definitely check it out. There's some astonishing similarities. 
if not in, in, you know, in obvious ways, then at least in, in tone and feel and atmosphere. I mentioned the idea of silent cinema before, but that, that's also really present in this sort of like expressionistic uh, sense that you get from this high contrast black and white. Um, also the use of makeup, which is quite uh, not exactly subtle, but really works really well. Um, and especially in the shots again of Kei Fujiwara, she really expresses, kind of incarnates that to me. There are stills from this, I mean obviously it's all in, in the film that you're watching, but there are individual stills of the of Kei Fujiwara in, in Tetsuo the Iron Man that anyone who is not familiar with the film Tetsuo the Iron Man would guess were from a, you know, a, a silent film from the 1920s or something. Here and again, for that reason, you know, listen, you know, watch this film with the sound off. You, you yourself will sometimes think that you're watching a genuine silent film from the 1920s or something, particularly in, in Kei Fujiwara's performances. So now, as, uh, as uh, her boyfriend is uh, metamorphosing into uh, the Iron Man, All of this also brings out sort of the fetishistic inclinations of her character. You know, where we see the death and, and deformation essentially turn her on sexually. Uh, there's been the car crash already, and then now we have the transformation, which seems to make her even more passionate. I mean, she's, she's trying to open the door. She's not trying to run away from him at this point. She, she wants to see him and wants to experience what's happening to him. There's this really strong desire going through her. And then there's the, the stabbing scene that will be that will come up in a moment. Um, and even her death scene happens in sex. So all of this is, uh, is a huge amount of uh, sexual fetishism happening here. Interestingly, the use of uh, uh, the car crash as, uh, as an aphrodisiac comes uh, quite a few years before, seven years, I think, before David Cronenberg did his version of J.G. Ballard's crash. I'm not sure if, if Tsukamoto read that novel at the time he was making Tetsuo. Yeah, if this is all quite, you know, the, the transformation is very grotesque and the, the, there's this, all this fetishism that's happening through the character of Kei Fujiwara. Um, at the same time, there's a kind of tragic undertone to this entire sequence because, you know, the, their love and desire for each other has been expressed really quite strongly. So, And she's even very curious and accepting of what is happening to her partner. Um, so, and it's her, in a sense, her, her willingness to accept it that, that causes her death. So, and at this point when uh, his, his dick has been turned into a, a metal drill, um, he's drilling holes all over the place into a door and into a table. Those were actually <laughs> the door and the table owned by Kei Fujiwara. This is her apartment. Um, the film was shot like Denchukozo in Kei Fujiwara's apartment and, and, and the, the wider building around it, which was scheduled for demolition and had a, a couple of empty rooms, one of which was right next door. So that's where they shot almost the entire film.
And uh, having shot Denchu Kozo, which took a year to make, and then Tetsuri Ironman, which took uh, almost a year and a half to make, everybody, uh, basically everybody in the cast and crew was staying there uh, overnight as well. And so uh, you can imagine how, uh, how the tensions would have flared over there and how Kei Fujiwara and her husband Kenji Nasaho appears in the adventure of Denchu Kozo. Um, uh, could only be so flexible, you know, up to a certain extent uh, until uh, there was some genuine wear and tear on everybody. So throughout the production of, of uh, uh, Tetsuri Iron Man, people, just members of the cast and crew started leaving. Until in the end, uh, only Tsukamoto was left, essentially. Uh, Tomoro Taguchi, our lead actor, he... Uh, is the only essentially the only one from this period that is still working with Tsukamoto and he says that that's because he at the time sensed that everyone was getting too close and that he should keep a bit of distance and so he was the only one essentially that didn't sleep over um, in the same location where they were shooting the film he would come on his bicycle from his parents house where he was living at the time um, and everyone else uh, fell by the wayside. And one of those people actually was uh, the later filmmaker Shojin Fukui, who would start to make very Tsukamoto-like films like Pinocchio, 964, etc. And uh, Robber's Lover. So, uh, yeah. You know, the idea of this uh, uh, strange happenings in, in very everyday surroundings is also out of necessity, of course. Because um, they didn't have the means to, to find major locations and, and build, build sets on the studio lot. Um, so for that too, it has a very sort of like everyday... Um, atmosphere to it and uh, it's, it's not cyberpunk in the sense of it being futuristic and so it's a very analog rather than digital form of cyberpunk um, which brings me back to something I promised to do uh, in, on the commentary of Denchi Kozo which is this uh, strange title that opens the adventure Denchi, of Denchi Kozo the great analog world uh, well here it is Tsukamoto's version of cyberpunk is simply very analog, very everyday, not digital at all. Um, so yeah, of course, uh, that aspect of it being very industrial, um, uh, plus the fact that the film was shot in 16mm black and white, of course, early on drew comparisons to uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead. Um, the black and white also for Tsukamoto, which he chose that because of you know the greatness um, calling up associations with the look and the sheen of, of metal objects. Um, but uh, yeah, you get this uh, industrial analog type of cyberpunk using scrap metal. Um, which, uh, according to some, is, uh, is a kind of typical aspect of the Japanese brand of cyberpunk. That it is more rooted in, uh, in these ideas of like scrap and leftovers and repurposing and uh, recycling, upcycling. Um, there's a wonderful book called Full Metal Apache, written by Takayuki Tatsumi, uh, who is uh, Japanese obviously, but the book is in English. And that book talks about the interactions between uh, Japanese and American uh, popular culture in the creation, uh, the formation, as sort of like the, the, the evolution of cyberpunk. And he argues that the central presence of, of scrap and recycling is a characteristic feature of Japanese cyberpunk. Now, I'm not sure how typically characteristically Japanese it is because of course in in American science fiction and cyberpunk notably in Blade Runner you get the retrofitting uh, 
right? Where, where things are made to look lived in through the, the, the recycling, um, uh, through repurposing things uh, from uh, their previous function into a new function. So it's kind of like mend and make do philosophy that's, that's present very much in the, the Blade Runner style of cyberpunk. Um, Perhaps what uh, Tatsumi is getting at um, about the, uh, the, the Japanese-ness of the use of scrap and, and uh, repurposing is, uh, and, well, the clue is in the title of the book, Full Metal Apache, and what he refers to is the Apache tribes. And these were post-World War II scavengers. Um, the Apache Zoku in, in Japanese many of whom were of Korean descent. And if you know a little bit about the history of Japan during World War II, um, a lot of wartime slave labor essentially was brought from Korea to Japan to work in munitions factory, et cetera, in factories, etc. And uh, when the war was over, those people were stuck there. So you get, after the war, uh, a community or uh, groups of resident Koreans who don't, who can't go back, obviously, with uh, all the restrictions and the chaos of the post-war, they have no choice but to continue to to make their lives and survive in Japan. And since they were an underclass, uh, obviously, one way is, one way of doing that is by uh, bending the rules and the law, so to speak. Um, and of course, immediately after the war. Japan had been bombed to bits by uh, Allied bombing planes. Um, so there were ruined factories and ruined um, industry, ruined factories, ruined uh, uh, machinery uh, all over the landscape, um, vehicles that had stopped working, etc., etc. And that all could be stripped for scrap that could be recycled or repurposed. Uh, now, the Americans, when they started their occupation of Japan, quickly made that illegal because they didn't really want anybody touching that stuff and they just wanted to gather it for themselves to see if there was any uh, any value for the Americans, be it uh, uh, as, as material or as, as a form of intelligence. So it was quickly outlawed, this, uh, this stripping and scavenging. Nevertheless, these people didn't really have much of a choice. So they continue doing this anyway. Um, so there's a, um, very much a historical basis of that, but it also became part of science fiction thanks to several writers in the 1960s and 70s, and even into the 80s, one of whom was uh, Sakyo Komatsu, who is better known for writing um, The Sinking of Japan, which was a huge hit as a novel and also as a, as a film adaptation. It was adapted twice, actually. But he also wrote uh, a, a sort of like a dystopian urban science fiction novel called uh, The Japanese Apache Tribe, uh, in which he used this uh, historical fact, uh, which was largely limited to the Korean community, uh, to create kind of future future scenario in which all Japanese were basically uh, after uh, after a big catastrophe all of them had no choice but to live as scavengers you know just rummaging rummaging through uh, metallic debris and searching for scrap metal so this aspect of uh, uh, scavenging and repurposing, of course, that's the, the low-tech aspect of cyberpunk, which is also very much acknowledged in, uh, in, uh, in writing on and writing on American cyberpunk and the writing in American cyberpunk. Of course, it's a huge part of William Gibson's work, for example. But that inevitably also, of course, connects to underclasses of society. So. Uh, historically, that was the the, the Koreans uh, in Japan who'd come as wartime labor, couldn't leave. But if you look at Blade Runner, for example, in the world of Blade Runner, uh, the middle classes and the higher classes have left planet Earth. 
Yeah, so only those who couldn't afford to leave uh, remained. So everything, every character you see on Blade Runner is either there because they're, they're duty-bound or because they don't have the means to leave. And so that brings us back to our metal fetishist and that opening scene of him being essentially a blue-collar factory worker living in a tiny apartment um, and being frustrated with his life. That essentially is what the character is. If you, if you strip the whole sci-fi and fantasy element, then that's what you have left. You have someone who's very much a, a, a marginal figure, someone from the underclasses. So now we have come to the point where uh, our metal fetishist is confronting our Iron Man, um, taunting him, basically. Um, through his feelings of guilt about what he did, you know, running, running our metal fetishist over by a car and then leaving him to die and then a worse, you know, having sex in front of him by getting excited because he is dying, etc, etc. So the taunting is what's, what's bringing out the, the transformation, the full-on transformation, which goes in several stages and several steps. Uh, and, and one step in there was the man, or he, our protagonist's choice, to defend himself. That's, this is the sequence where he's being chased down the station corridors. There comes a moment when he's cornered and he decides to fight back. So that was his sort of like first uh, first decision to actually use his body again, to be aware of the abilities of his own body, which is something that he was none to up until that point. So this is what the metal fetishist is actually trying to trying to achieve in him. But like I said, it's very sort of like instinctive, sort of an instinctive approach to uh, this idea. It's not really spelled out as much and it's not really as consciously expressed as it would be on Tetsuo 2. This is also a really great thing where he, the metal fetishist, the guy does his own essentially theatrical expressionistic makeup. You know? So what I was talking about earlier, it's very clearly and very overtly present there. So as uh, we go to uh, into the full completion of uh, the Iron Man's own transformation uh, leading up to the confrontation with the Metal Fetishist, which is of course going to lead into the fusion and the next stage. But anyway, at this point we basically get to, uh, we get to see essentially a completed Iron Man, but we don't actually get to see him all that often. Yeah, there's maybe one or two full body shots of the Iron Man. And after that, it's always parts, you see. So that saved, of course, that saved the cast and crew a lot of work with having to uh, to do all the makeup, the full body makeup on, uh, on Tomoro Taguchi. Of course, they did it here. Now, this is one of those shots where you see the full body. Of course, they did all these shots uh, all on the same day as much as possible. But in the rest of the film, you get bits and pieces. You see close-up of a hand, or you see close-up of a, of a um, face, uh, maybe like a half, uh, half, you know, like a semi-close-up that includes a, like a kind of a bust shot. But they're always parts. So the viewer, having seen the once or twice the full version, will imagine the rest. We just fill that in. We fill in the blanks by ourselves. We complete the picture. Also, what's interesting about the few full body scenes that we see is that it's a full body suit. Yeah, so they made a, a sort of like a jumpsuit, like a tight jumpsuit, and they attached all the, the, the parts uh, 
to the suit and then Tomono Taguchi got into the suit and was zipped up. Of course, that's a very classic way of doing things and it harkens back to Tsukamoto's favorite kaiju films, you know, the old monster, Godzilla monster style films where it's always, the monster is always a guy in a suit. So uh, that's, that aspect, which is something that Tsukamoto loves very much, is not only there as sort of like an artistic inspiration, but it's very much present physically in the film as well. of other influences I mean some of the influences on the on Tetsuo are obvious like the kaiju films and uh, uh, David Cronenberg and the comparison with David Lynch particularly Eraserhead of course um, Schwankmeier, Jan Schwankmeier in the, the stop-motion animation using uh, junk and scrap um, these are all uh, familiar reference points that have been pointed out many times by a lot of observers um, there are a couple of less obvious sources of influences in sources of influence which um, don't get talked about so much one, one is Hans Bellmer of course the German creator of these peculiar vaguely humanoid dolls um, his work also strongly influenced Mamoru Oshii on his Ghost in the Shell films um, the, the, yeah, he, it's Hans Belmer combined these sort of like mannequin parts into new kinds of in, um, new kinds of human bodies, new imaginations for what the human body could be. And this is uh, in the very early twentieth century. Um, highly recommended. Absolutely fascinating stuff, and also very fetishistic. It's uh, it's very very close to. Uh, um, a certain element of, uh, of Tsukamoto's work, very much so. Highly recommend that you check that out if you don't know about it already. Uh, and another one, another influence is uh, the work of Marshall Arisman, the American painter and illustrator, whose work similarly uh, imagines fusions of, of, of bodies which in real life couldn't exist. Uh, um, but allow us to imagine like post post humanity which is of course a major major theme in cyberpunk so um, Marshall Arisman doesn't get mentioned a lot but was a, a major influence on the design aspect of Tetsuo the Iron Man and Tsukamoto himself I've seen some of his original notes when he was planning Tetsuo the Iron Man at one point he has a list of influences and it says Marshall Arisman and behind that it says uh, rather than Giger or like not Giger which is very peculiar <laughs> because we all think of Giger when we watch Tetsuo the Iron Man and granted Scamato does love Alien and does love Giger's work but it's interesting that he emphasized in his early uh, preparations for Tetsuo the Iron Man that uh, Arisman, uh, Arisman more than Giger but of course, you know, the ample use of the, the ribbed tubing in this film, it is, it's inevitably reminds us of, of Giger and his biomechanical visions. So we've come to this amazing sequence of stop motion where we move into the fusion, uh, like the, tr the complete awakening of, uh, of um, Taguchi's character the fusion of him as Iron Man with the metal fetishist and then leading up to both of them going out into the world and turning it into rust, uh, turning it into metal, whatever you want to call it. Uh, first of all, it's amazingly well done. Um, most of these stop-motion uh, sequences were done by Tsukamoto all by himself by the time that every member of his crew had departed so he was just left by himself and in his own room no longer having the use of the former main location 
shooting these little scrap metal stop-motion animations and if you know the circumstances the, the results are all the more impressive and all the more amazing and the only one left still was as i said uh, taguchi the main actor so they could still do uh, this final battle but you will see that in a lot of cases you only see ever see one character on screen at the time is because the other the other person who was not on screen was holding the camera and yeah the the metal fetishists idea of a world turned into metal is the new world uh, which we see uh, graphically on screen several times the term which is, of course is very cronenbergian um, the body horror, the, the fusion of flesh and metal, the fusion of... You know, that's, it's really interesting also, the fusion basically of, of individual bodies with their environments. Um, which is a very zen-like uh, uh, thought really. Being aware that you are... Um, even on our everyday, you know, everyday lives, on the level of the atom, you know, we everything is the same. We are our environment, and our environment is us. And speaking of Cronenberg, of course, the fly, huge and very conscious influence, artistic influence on on uh, on Tetsuo. I mean, there's the, the shot early on when Taguchi, while he's shaving, first noticed this little metal uh, thing point, you know, peeking out of his uh, his cheek. That's almost an identical shot to uh, Seth Brundle seeing the first, uh, the very first signs of his transformation into a fly, you know, looking into the mirror. So now we get these interesting flashbacks to uh, uh, um, sort of like a, a vagrant or homeless character who might be a father figure of some kind to uh, uh, our metal fetishist when he was a, a boy. Uh, this character is played by Renji Ishibashi, who is one of two actors in the film who, who, was, who, was, who was a professional at the time. Uh, the other actor is Naomasa Musaka, we saw earlier in a flashback uh, as a kind of a doctor who finds the metal lodged in the, in the skull of the, the young metal fetishist. And now we get to see how that metal got there. Uh, it kind of expresses what uh, the psychology of, of uh, uh, what the psychology behind the character the metal fetishist is. It's not just a, an idea, there's actually a, a psychological motivation for him you know so he's hit he was hit with the same kind of metal rods uh, that he later pushes into his body that's what we see him do at first in the beginning of the film so in a sense what he's doing here as a character is uh, you know he's constantly reliving his childhood trauma um, and in psychiatry that's known as narrativizing you know where you if you've people who have had traumatic experiences continue to reenact those experiences as a way to turn them into uh, a scenario and a scenario of course uh, if you create a scenario you're the writer and you control the scenario and that is uh, a psychological um, uh, process that many people go through that have gone through uh, gone through traumatic experiences as a way to learn to cope with it you narrativize it and therefore they gain more control over it so that's what that's what the metal fetishist has been doing. He's been trying to gain like mastery over that abuse that he suffered. So in that sense, uh, you know, his his transformation um, into the creature we see here that eventually will fuse with the Iron Man is something that is the result of pure willpower. It's pure agency. 
Yeah, so he is, in a sense, in realizing this about himself, that he is capable of controlling his body, his mind, his thoughts. He becomes even more contemptuous towards those who lead their life in a sort of like very numbed, um, routine manner. He feels that these people who didn't have um, the same sort of like traumatic experiences and therefore should be ha should be having much happier lives are actually wasting their life. And so he, you know, he's, he lashes out, he strikes out, he becomes abusive himself. Yeah, he needs to he needs to cause damage. He needs to abuse others to achieve his goal. And so um, I am no psychiatrist, but uh, you know that is a very plausible, as uh, you know, as fanciful as it is expressed in this particular film. The process and the motivations are very plausible from like a, a psychological point of view. So as we go into the finale and the confrontation between uh, the two uh, opponents uh, or, um, or maybe lovers or maybe brothers, so who knows, we're about to get some clues in a moment. Uh, we've moved into these old iron factories or iron foundries. Um, again, very sort of like a, a rust, no, not a rust belt, that's American, but yeah, rusted, rusted industry. Industry that's sort of like crumbling. So it's uh, quite wonderful that his film sort of captured that. In a sense, it's kind of it's almost documentary-like the way he uses a lot of the locations because in Japan, all buildings do not tend to last very long. You know, buildings are built uh, to be uh, impermanent, to be temporary. In other parts of the world, buildings uh, form uh, investment. Uh, investment objects but in Japan uh, especially through uh, you know all the natural disasters that the country goes through and regular at regular intervals uh, buildings are not uh, are known to not last long anyway so they are not built to last very long and so buildings that sort of have gone past their shelf life get torn down very quickly and then uh, yeah that's that's has made uh, uh, Japanese cinema, especially the cinema of the 1990s, uh, rather wonderful, wonderfully uh, documentary-like, you know, in just simply documenting the landscape of, uh, let's say, post-bubble post Japan. Uh, of course, interestingly, after the bubble, the asset bubble burst, uh, it became much less profitable to build new buildings. So. Quite a lot of these buildings, old buildings, lasted longer than they would have had in the past. So you see that aspect in Tsukamoto's work and you also see it very clearly in the work of Kiyoshi Kurosawa, for example, also loves shooting and run-down buildings that have been abandoned and in many cases have been taken over by nature. Again, if you look at these sequences and the fusion that's about to happen, it's, you know, turn off the sound and uh, just look at them for their for their, uh, for their pictorial beauty. It's that's absolutely astonishing that Tsukamoto was basically doing this all by himself. Just imagine the drive that he must have had. You know, it's just to see this, this, to see it through against all the odds, because all the odds were against him. He was kicked out of his house, by, kicked out of the house by his parents. Um, he had very little money uh, to make this film. Uh, all his crew members left, and he actually ran out of money halfway through shooting this film. So the obstacles were enormous. Um, he would, in 1988, he would receive the Pia Film Festival Grand Prize for the Adventure of Denchu Kozo. But that was still in the future while he was doing these sequences. And these sequences were happening towards the end of the shoot of Tensori Arma. Uh, 
So imagine, just imagine his, uh, his incredible drive to make this film and make it happen, in spite of everything. So yeah, halfway, uh, halfway through 1988, uh, running, uh, running out of money, um, he had um, essentially sh completed principal photography, um, was editing, and he needed money to um, hire a sound designer. Uh, he couldn't really, he wasn't really uh, uh, knowledgeable enough himself to do the sound design and the sound editing. Uh, here, look at these amazing, amazing images. Uh, but yeah, sound designer. So um, he, to hire a sound designer, of course, he needed money. He could continue doing the editing himself. He didn't need to pay himself, but he needed to pay a sound designer. So uh, he knocked on the door of a couple of uh, companies and they all turned him down. Uh, until he came to a company called F2. Um, F2 was a video distributor for mostly European art house films. And the head of the company was uh, the former head of the PR organization, Mr. Kurokawa. And one of the main employees was also a former PR uh, employee, Hiromi Aihara, who would actually become quite important for Tsukamoto uh, through Tetsuo 2 and Tokyo Fist and onwards. And uh, they knew who he was, because at that point um, he had just one. At least he had entered his work into into Pia Film Festival, and um, so they were they knew who he was, and they liked his work, and they introduced him to a company called Japan Home Video, uh, one of the major uh, video distributors to have come up in Japan during the boom years of, of VHS and video rental. And Japan Home Video, in return for uh, uh, the rights to, uh, to, to basically the home video rights to Tetsuo the Iron Man, gave him an advance, and on that advance he was able to finish the film. And of course, you know this is not without uh, without significance because you know the booming state of the video market during the late 80s and into the early 90s meant that even very obscure cult movies that would get a very small, tiny theatrical release or no theatrical release at all could still make a profit from uh, from the videotapes. And of course the fact that these things, these, uh, all these kinds of films, because the video market was so voracious, so hungry for, for content, that anything could get released and make a profit, actually, at that point. And that led, of course, to new forms of financing films, such as pre-sales, you know, where companies bought the video rights to uh, a film project, even though the film project had not been made yet. So uh, that's how uh, our budgets would start to be gathered uh, during the 1980s and the 1990s. So we've gone into the fusion of uh, the Iron Man and the Metal Fetishist, which was very homoerotic. You know, they, they fuse the, uh, the man and the guy, they fuse into a new being. Um, there was actually a longer sequence there, which was cut out of the film, which is part of that 77 minute longer version, where, uh, you know, the Metal Fetishist is sort of like whispering sweet nothings to, uh, to the Iron Man into his ear, revealing his... his romantic attraction to him, which parallels uh, the finale of Phantom of Regular Size, the, the, the Tetsuo blueprint for which Tsukamoto didn't have any, uh, didn't have any money uh, to, to make a big finale, and also Tomo Taguchi hadn't shown up uh, in time, so uh, they did a, a sort of like a, a loving scene where uh, the mental fetishist is feeding the Iron Man uh, foods very much similar to the earlier feeding scene that we had between Taguchi and Kei Fujiwara with the sausage. But anyway, yeah, the new world is uh, coming to in, into existence. Um, 
And the final Iron Man fusion is unapologetically phallic, as you can see here. Uh, women are literally discarded to get to this kind of homosocial new world idea. You know, Nobu Kanaoka and Kei Fujiwara have died in the process. So that's really interesting because uh, that makes Tetsuo and the Tetsuo films uh, strangely at odds with the very strong current of feminism that's, uh, that's present and apparent in many of Tsukamoto's other works. Um, such as Tokyo Fist, such as Bullet Ballet, such as A Snake of June, and on Kotoko, etc. Those films are very strongly, very overtly feminist, and, but the Tetsuo films are not. They're all about, you know, homosocial men getting together and, you know, violently turning the world into metal. Uh, probably because, you know, that theme is built around the, sort of like the middle-class salaryman model of contemporary living. It's a very male-focused male idea that's expressed in a very male-focused manner. And then, yeah, that final fusion is a huge thing that they built around a, a small truck that they, they drove around uh, parts of Tokyo. Um, nothing particularly new for Tsukamoto to do that because he had already built these huge sets for his theater plays and also built uh, the tent in which the theater plays were enacted. So it's, uh, there's a long history there of building huge sets. We have come to the end of uh, the film, uh, nearly. Uh, what certainly wasn't the end of Tetsuo, because that would have a long, long afterlife. Uh, since I'm running out of time here, I will save that for uh, my commentary on Tetsuo 2. Uh, because Tetsuo, of course, would go on to be not only Tsukamoto's breakthrough, but also a big breakthrough for Japanese cinema internationally as well. And it's a film in that respect that is almost as important as Kurosawa's Rashomon back from 1951. Game over. That also talks about performance, doesn't it? Bye-bye.